Welcome to the Community Hope Podcast. We exist to share hope with more people in more places. For more information on this podcast or our church, please visit communityhope.org. Now stay tuned for our Sermon of the Week. Good morning, everybody. Uh, as uh, Keith was saying, my name's Cayman DeYoung. I'm so glad you guys came to church this morning. Uh, I'm a senior at Montezuma Community Schools, and this is going to be my second time preaching to you guys. I'm just so excited. This is a great day, you know. So let's make sure my slides are working there. All right, perfect. So uh, today we are going to be talking about prayer. And last time I was up on stage, we uh, spoke about the topic of sin. So I figured it's only right that this week we talk about prayer, you know, give us uh, some positive vibes this week, you know. So I believe that prayer is something that each and every one of us in here should be able to relate to, whether in one way or another. Like, every single one of us are called in some way, shape, or form to pray. And it's just been a big burden on my heart lately that, you know, when I've looked at my own life and I've looked at the church and just everything going on, does the church today know how to adequately, adequately pray the way that Jesus called us to pray? And how many of us in here would say that our life and our prayer life is where we would like it to be? Or how many of us in here would say that, yes, our relationship with Christ through prayer is as impactful and important to us as it should be? So today I'm going to be talking about climbing the mountain of prayer. You'll see that on the screen behind me. And before we begin, it's only right that we talk about and I explain that when we pray in my eyes and my viewpoint, it can a lot of times tend to feel like climbing a mountain. You know, praying isn't always easy. So how do we adequately climb the mountain of prayer in our own lives? So to get started, I'm going to ask you the question today, why is it you came to church? You know, why is it you're sitting here this morning? Is it because you love the cookies in the lounge, you know? You heard there was a top-rated pastor speaking here this morning? (laughs) That was really cocky, I'm sorry. You know, was it because of the worship? You love the worship team. Or, you know, you just had a really rough Saturday and you figured you had to, you know, get holy on Sunday. Or man, you could say, Cayman, I'm just at the end of my ropes today, and I, this is my last spot to turn. Whatever your reason is, I believe that the core reason we come to church is because there is a part of our hearts, there's an aspect in our lives that intimately wants to know the Father. Whether we know it or not, part of us cries out and longs to hear the Father and know and be intimate with God. And there's a lot of us in here, whether you believe in God or not, there's still a part of our hearts that, you know, on the inside, is God really real? If I pray, will I actually meet him? And the whole point of church is the fact that we will grow closer to God. So that leaves us with a question, how do we grow close to God? That's through prayer. So we're going to open up with a passage of scripture today. If you have your Bibles, feel free to flip there, you know, turn them on, on your cell phone. Uh, on the sides and the backs of the room, there's a Bible. We're going to become from a lot of scripture today. And we're going to open up to Exodus 19.9. Exodus is all about the Israelites, if you're new to the whole church thing. So the Israelites were God's chosen people. They were called to be God's chosen people, and we see that at the time, they were in captivity and slavery to the Egyptians. And this is going to focus on this man named Moses. Now Moses was an Israelite who God called to set his people free from captivity. And we see that Moses accepts the call. Moses then goes on, and this is the same man who God gives his staff to, and he says, if you throw this staff on the ground, it will turn into a viper, and that will be the sign to Pharaoh that you're going to set my people free. So Moses does it. And it's the same Moses 
who walks up to the Red Sea and by the miracle and power of God slams the staff down and it parts the Red Sea, allowing the uh, Israelites to walk through on dry ground. So it's been three months since the Israelites have left Egypt, and we see that they've been wandering through the desert. Unsure of where to go, they just know that God's been calling them to this, to this spot. So we see that they walk to this mountain called Mount Sinai. And when they get to the foot of this mountain, Moses hears the voice of God calling him to the top of it. So Moses accepts that call, and he climbs the mountain to meet God. And when he gets to the top, God meets him and says, hey, I'm going to set up a covenant with you guys, a promise. If you will follow my commands, you will be a holy priesthood, a righteous nation. You will be my people. Will you accept? So Moses takes his request back down the mountain and asks the Israelites, and they're like, duh, yeah, we want that. You know, imagine being God's holy people. So Moses climbs back up the mountain and says, all right, God, yeah, they're into this. We're going to be your people. You'll be our God. We'll follow your rules and commands. So God being God says, all right, I'm not going to take a half measure. If you're going to be my people, you've got to get ready. And this opens us up into verse 9. The Lord then said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said, their agreement to be God's chosen people. So think about this. Yes, God, we'll be your people. And God says, all right, better get ready because I'm coming and in three days I'll be on this mountaintop. Jumping to verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Imagine the presence and spirit of God coming down upon a mountaintop. Like imagine the God that we serve, the God that the Bible describes as an all-consuming fire. A God that we can't even fathom. A lot of times in our context in society, we try to dumb God down, it feels like, a lot. And we try to put an image with him and we try to say, you know, God's just a little God. But how many of you know today that the God that you and I serve is a big God? It says that he is an omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient being. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, and in all places. The Bible says that he is so far beyond us that we can't even fathom his own thoughts that God, the God of fire and, you know, righteous holiness, a light that cannot be approached by any human, is going to descend upon this mountaintop. And they've got three days to get ready. Let's jump to verse 11. Oh, verse 14, sorry. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, abstain yourselves then from sexual relationships. So we see here that if the Israelites were to meet God, they had to do some stuff first. And let's take a moment and remember, we are in the Old Testament, not the New Testament. If you don't know the difference between the two, the New Testament focuses on Jesus. When Jesus came, we no longer are sinners because when we have faith in Christ, it says that we are washed clean from our iniquities. We no longer have to carry that sin. But before Jesus came, we see that we were bound to God by the law. We had to fulfill the law. God had a plan in mind when he created the world that we as humans were to walk in a right relationship with him. Everything that we do should be in step with the Father because he wants to intimately have a relationship with us as humans. But we see 
that when Adam and Eve committed the first sin, like we talked about when I last spoke, we separated ourselves from God. We could no longer get to God because he is perfect and we are not perfect. So we see that God, who wanted to have an intimate relationship with us, said, all right, all right, I'm going to give you the law. If you will follow my Ten Commandments and observe them, you can be with me. All you have to do is when you sin, sacrifice an animal, and its blood will wash away your sins. So the Israelites went about that. It said he consecrated them. When it says consecrated, that's them sacrificing the animals for their sins to cover over all of their wrongdoings. And then it said that uh, they washed their clothes. They had to dunk their clothes into water and have it washed clean because they had to be physically and spiritually clean before the Lord. And on the third day, they had to abstain from sexual relationships. So there's a big contrast here. In the Old Testament, it wasn't about us coming to God through faith, but it is how good we could be to get to God. Can we observe the commandments and can we follow the rules and then we can meet God? But I'd like to tell you that we no longer live in the Old Testament. We live in the New Testament. We live in the New Covenant. We don't come to God by being good enough. We come to God by faith through Jesus who has made us good enough. So, just imagine this. Imagine living in the Old Covenant. I think about what it would be like a lot of times. You know, I think of the example of math class. I'm a senior. I've had a lot of math tests. I can tell you I cannot stand math class. It's not because of a teacher. It's just not my thing. I'm not smart enough to, you know, understand it. Anyway, I just, every time before I took a math test in high school, I'd make sure I prayed and got in the presence of God because how many of you know, the only way I was passing that thing was from divine wisdom. So... Every time before Miss Parson would hand out that math test, I was like, God, help me out here. I'm in a tough bind right now. And I imagine, what would it be like if I was trying to meet God and receive his presence in the old covenant versus the new covenant in that situation? So, you know, in the new covenant where I just pray because I have access to the Father through Jesus at all times, in the old covenant, I can imagine Miss Parson's handing out the math test and she gets to my desk, Cayman, why are you sopping wet? Well... <laughs> Well, you see, Miss Pargin, you know, I just had to make myself physically clean before I met God, so I took a shower before the test. Okay, I guess I can get on board with that. Well, Cayman, why are you wearing a suit? Well, you know, I have to be physically appealing before the Lord. Okay, that understands. Cayman, why is there a sheep tied to your desk? <laughs> well, give me a knife in five minutes and I can take this math test. That was the relationship we lived in with God. It was not based on a faith where we can enter into a relationship with God at any time, but can we follow the rules and be good enough to get to God through sacrifice? And I'm here to tell you today, praise God, Jesus got rid of that. So check this out, verse 16. And on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, and with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, everyone in the camp trembled. The presence of God had arrived. And were the Israelites ready? It says that they followed all the rules and the commandments. And the presence of the God that you and I serve descended on the mountaintop. The omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God. The God who is an all-consuming fire descended on the mountain. And in verse 17, then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. That would be terrifying. Imagine seeing 
this giant mountain, and it says that the presence of God, the very being that created the universe, descended upon it, and there was smoke like that from a furnace and fire and lightning from inside. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice, voice of God answered him. In this moment, God calls Moses to the top of the mountain. And I can just imagine how scary that would be. Like imagine you're looking at the mountain that's about ready to erupt, explode. It has fire and smoke coming from inside it. And you see Moses walk into the fog. And all of the Israelites stayed behind because God said if they were to touch the mountain, they would die. He could only speak with Moses. So Moses, this mere mortal who has sin in his life, who isn't good enough, goes through the law and it says that he ascends the mountain. And I can only imagine what he was thinking, like, I am going to die right now. I'm going to step into the presence of the God whom I serve, who is infinitely greater than anything I can fathom. Think about this. A couple hundred years after this event, priests went on to build the temple of God. And they were so freaked out by this idea of God that the inner room where the Ark of the Covenant was placed, where the presence of God resided, was completely off limits. You couldn't walk in there. That's where God resided. You stayed out of that or you would die. So once a year, one priest who was basically drawn by rolling dice, and if it fell on your name, you had to enter the room, had to perform a certain ceremony. They had to go about and clean the room. And these priests were so freaked out, the holiest of holy of Israel were so freaked out to step into this inner presence of God that they would literally tie a rope around their waist with a bell on it and give the end of the rope to the other priest and they'd go into the room. And the reason they did this was, if the other priest stopped hearing the bell ring, they would pull the dead body of the priest out because they were so terrified of God. Because we as mortal beings, to step into the presence of a perfect being, it will kill us. It says that nobody can live and see the face of God. But we see that Moses is called to the top of this mountain and he's obedient. So this is where I want to pick up our first point today. Many Christians are fearful to climb the mountain of God. We're afraid, and I don't blame them. Think about this. The same presence that rests on Mount Sinai at that time is living within you and me. It says when we accept Christ into our hearts, that presence, the Holy Spirit that was on top of that mountain, the same presence that split the Red Sea, the same presence that rose Christ from the dead is now living with inside of you and me. It's a little freaky when you think about it that way. And so many people and so many Christians in our society still act as if the God that we serve is the God of the Old Covenant and not the New Covenant. There's so many people that walk out their lives not understanding that we don't have to be afraid when we climb the mountain of prayer anymore. There's so many people that are freaked out and they think to step into the very presence of God would be death, but you need to understand that when Jesus Christ came and died for your and my sins, it says that we were washed clean. His blood, because he lived a perfect life, acted as those animal sacrifices. We no longer have to be afraid to step into the presence of God because it says we are dressed as Christ is dressed. When God sees us, he doesn't see our sin and our shame. He sees us dressed as Christ. And because of that, we are called to live a devout prayer life in an intense relationship with the Father. And this is where we're going to pick up today. Climbing the mountain of prayer doesn't come without difficulties and obstacles, though. And how many of you know that when we start trying to climb that mountain of prayer for the first time, the devil and even ourselves in a lot of situations will throw obstacles and dangers in your way of climbing that mountain? 
For example, did you know that Moses was 80 years old when he climbed that mountain for the first time? Like, think about that. All right, Grandpa, grab your walker and get on up there. God's waiting. <laughs> My dad's 40, and he can barely roll out of bed some days. It's crazy. <laughs> Sorry, Pops. But I'm here to tell you that just as Moses faced dangers when he climbed that mountain, in the same way, we have obstacles thrown in our way and dangers when we climb the mountain of prayer. But it's still worth climbing it. Let's look at the life of Jesus Mark 6:46 this is Jesus after bidding them farewell he left for the mountain to pray Jesus was a prayer warrior look at Mark 1:35 in the early morning while it was still dark Jesus got up left the house and went away to a secluded place and was pl- praying there let's look at Luke 22:32 not only did Jesus pray by himself but he prayed for others this is when he's talking to the disciples but i have prayed for you that your faith may not fail you And finally, we see that Jesus not only prayed in the presence of his disciples, but he prayed in the presence of 5,000 people. Matthew 14, 19. Jesus was in the presence of the 5,000 who he was about ready to feed. So look at this. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up towards heaven, he blessed the food. So it's like in an evening meal when someone says prayer. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus doesn't just want us to pray for ourselves, but he wants an active life of prayer towards those around us. And for a long time in my life, I've been afraid to pray for people. And, you know, I've just said, no, I don't really pray for people. That's not really my thing. But I got convicted. And how many know that changes stuff? Anyway, I started asking myself, am I afraid to pray for people because I don't want to pray for them? Or am I afraid to pray for people because if I pray for them, They'll see the inadequacies of my prayer life. And I'm here to tell you that we can't live in an adequate prayer life. We need to be plugged into the source. Let me ask you this. Did Jesus, our salvation, the perfecter and author of our hope, God himself constantly pray because God needed it? Or was he constantly in prayer because he understood how important prayer was for a human? If God reincarnated on this earth, understood that we should be praying in every situation, how much more important is it for our own lives? So I started asking myself, what are some obstacles we can face when we try to climb the mountain of prayer? And what gets in our way when we want to have a developed prayer life, but things just start to pop up? And I found that it's a lot like climbing a mountain, you see. When someone tries to climb a mountain for the first time or pick up any hobby, we do one of two things. We get the book on how to do it or we watch a YouTube video. I'm a YouTube video guy because I don't like to read. Anyway, so I started thinking, is there such thing as a mountain climbing handbook? And I found it on Amazon. I didn't actually buy it because it was like 20 bucks. But anyway, it is titled The 1001 Ways to Climb a Mountain. Here's an image of the back cover. And you see, it's pretty standard. Page 1 to 240 is just considered the basics, you know, so nothing too extensive. And then page, you know, 241 to 327 is considered safety, how to climb it safely. And then we jump all the way back to 877 to 1001 is just called stuff, so I don't know what they put in there. Anyway, a lot of us when we step into church for either the first time or if we've been raised in the church our entire lives, we pick up the rule book on how to pray and how to meet God. And normally that rule book is based on those around us in the church. 
I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a good thing. But there's some of us in here, when you were raised in church, you were raised in a church that said, when you get to church, you know, you better cross your T's, dot your I's. You sit here just like this with hand folded in your chair. You don't say a word the entire time, and then you leave and you smile and act like everything is going well. And then there's some of us in here who have gone to churches where it's like, you have your hands up praising the entire time, like you don't sit down. But either way, what I'd like to ask you is, is your prayer life developed off of what you've learned from others or from what God has been calling you into? Because I know there's so many people in here, you know, we've developed a life of prayer where we sit in a row every single Sunday and we just have our arms crossed and when we feel that tug to worship God, we just shove it down because that's not what someone of my status would do. Or my life's too messed up, I don't want anybody else to see that. Or man, I was just taught that to show any emotion in the presence of God is messed up, so why would I even bother? Or man, will God even listen because the rules say that he's God and I'm a human, so why would he care? So I'd like to come from a passage of scripture, 2 Samuel 6.16. You see pictures of King David in 2 Samuel 6 is about when the Ark of the Covenant was coming back into Israel. Now, if you know the story, the ark was stolen by the Philistines, which were an evil people, and the presence of God moved with the ark. They created it so that the presence of God would rest there, and whoever had the ark was with the presence of God. So we see the Philistines take it, and they're like, sweet, we have God. This is perfect. We have the Israelites' God, but we see that God had made a covenant to be the God of the Israelites, and because of this, he sent famine and destruction and plagues down upon the Philistines. And we see that the Philistines got so upset, they were finally like, forget it, we don't want your God anymore, and they load it onto the back of two oxen and send it out into the wilderness. And they say, if their God's so great, he knows the way back to Israel. And what do you know? The two oxen bring it back to Israel, so that's pretty cool. So the story focuses in on King David. And as the ark is coming back to the city, this is what it says. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. David, the righteous, powerful king of Israel, who ruled with an iron fist, literally struck down to, that's essentially his underwear, the white linen ephod, and in front of all the people, he was dancing and worshiping the Lord. And I can just imagine, some contexts say dancing with all of his might. Like, King David is getting pumped. I'm not going to dance. I'm not a good dancer. But anyway, just imagine how intense that was. Like, the presence of God is now coming back to Israel. And David says, I don't care who's watching, I'm going to dance. But we see his wife sees that behavior. And I can just imagine when King David comes home, He's like, honey, you won't believe it. The ark's back. This is great. I was dancing and we were worshiping God. And Michael's just standing there. Oh, yeah, I saw you. No. Upset. So, verse 20. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, oh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. She was mad. <laughs> Going around half naked in full view of all the slave girls of his servant. You know, she is very upset. How dare a king like you dance in front of others? How dare someone who was put in a position to rule go around worshiping the Lord? Acting like an idiot is essentially what this would say in our normal context. We see what does David say 
And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his household to be appointed to rule over the Lord's people. I will celebrate before the Lord, and I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you have spoke of, I will be held in honor. David did not care the situation. He did not care his income. He did not care his status. He did not care how he screwed up. He just knew one thing. The presence of God was coming, and was he going to worship, or was he going to look at excuses for why he shouldn't worship? And I'm here to ask you today, how many of us in here have sat in the same chair every Sunday for the last 20 years with our arms crossed, unwilling to praise and worship because we have looked at our own lives and said, that's not someone my status would do. Or man, I just had a really rough week, so I'm just going to avoid praying altogether. Or man, I see the person on my right and left, and I've built my entire prayer and worship life off of the set of rules they are following instead of what God has called me to preach. So what if just for one moment we were to look at this rule book that we picked up on how to climb the mountain and we just set it aside for a minute and come to the feet of God like we should, just in full surrender, not caring what anybody else has told us, but coming to a point of surrender where we don't care who's on our right or left, but if God's coming and his presence is going to be in this room, would we accept that call and worship the way that he would want us to? For my second example, after we've figured the rule book on how to walk into a church and worship, a lot of mountain climbers always have one thing on them every time without fail. They get a safety rope. And the purpose of a rope isn't just to keep them suspended, it's so that when they fall, they don't get hit the ground and become just a red splatter. You know what I'm talking about? And in my own life and a lot of other people's lives, I feel like we can pick up this idea of having a safety rope and we start to build excuses on why we shouldn't climb higher up on the mountain or why we shouldn't climb the mountain at all because we look at this rope and we start tying excuses around our waist. Well, you know, would God really answer me in my prayer? So should I even climb it? Or wow, my life's pretty messed up. I don't think God would really want to talk with me right now. Or, you know, I never really understood the whole church thing, and I don't really want to have anything to do with God, so why would he want anything to do with it? Or, man, I know how messed up my life is, and I see the life of other people, so why don't they climb the mountain, and I'll just watch with my safety rope attached to me. And I'm here to tell you that God's not mad with you. He's not angry with you. He's not the old covenant God that a lot of us tend to look at, which is a God of you know, just pure anger and hatred and righteousness like a lot of people have taught. But the God that you and I serve is a loving, compassionate Father. And I want you to think about this for a minute. Let's think about Jesus. Jesus in Matthew was speaking with his disciples. And his disciples, Philip, said, Jesus, show us the face of the Father and that will be enough for us. Just show us what God looks like and we'll be happy. And Jesus says, Philip, I've been with you so long, yet you don't know me. If you've seen me, then you have seen the Father. Because of this, we can distinguish one thing. Jesus was 100% God, and he was 100% man. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. 
Jesus is 100% God, meaning he cannot go against the will of God. Everything Jesus acted out, walked out, and breathed on the earth is the will of God. Therefore, when we look at the life of Jesus, everything that Jesus said and did is the will of the Father, is the work of God. Therefore, we can judge his attitude, we can judge his moods, all by the life of Jesus. And so... I think one of the biggest excuses I've used sometimes when it comes to why I hesitate and I'm afraid to pray is because I look at my life and I'd say, you know, if I was to pray to God right now, he'd probably be pretty upset with my actions. Or man, my life's pretty messy right now, so why don't I get it cleaned up and then come back to pray? I'd like to tell you that's the opposite of the gospel because God is not here so we can get our lives cleaned up, then come to Jesus. Jesus is here so we can go to Jesus. He will clean our lives up and then we can go to God. So, let's look at Luke 7, 11 through 13. This is the life of Jesus. Keep in mind, everything Jesus said and did is the will of the Father. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town went with her. So a woman's son has died. She's a widow. Not only did she just lose her son, but because she was a widow, she most likely had nobody supporting her financially now, unless she had really compassionate neighbors or family who cared about her. But besides this, her son was the only income she now had for her family because women at the time normally didn't have a job that could sustain their lifestyle. So not only has this woman lost her son, but she's lost all means to live. She will most likely go to the street. Her life is falling apart and show me a pain that is greater than that of losing a child. Her life's a mess. But look at what Jesus says. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Jesus showed compassion. Jesus didn't go to this woman and say, hey, your life's pretty messed up. Why don't you fix that, and then I'll come make everything better. He didn't say to her, I don't know. You sinned pretty bad last week, so this is just judgment from God. You can't get mercy from me. He didn't go to her and say, you know what? Give it a week or so, and then see if you still want to come and worship me. Or, I'm sorry, you don't have enough faith to pray right now. He didn't say any of that. He looked at this woman whose life had fallen apart, a woman who was going to live on the streets, a woman who couldn't support herself financially, and he said, don't cry. Jesus in the Bible was a God of emotions. He cried before he rose Lazarus from the dead. So how much more so would he look at this woman who he was going to come and die for, a woman who God created in his image who he loves, And it says his heart went out to her, and I can just imagine how he said it. Don't cry. It's going to be okay. Don't cry. God loves you. I'm going to take care of it. And we see in verse 14, 15, and 16, he heals the boy's son. God doesn't look at your situation and disqualify you from climbing the mountain. It's because of Jesus that we are qualified to climb the mountain. But will you climb it and will you take the chance to see that God is good? Taste and see that the Lord is good. God wants to meet you today. And finally, for my last point, besides the rule book and besides the rope, and we feel like we're at the end of our ropes and God doesn't want to meet us, 
I think a lot about, oh, sorry. I think a lot about when I was a little kid, you know, I was about 8 to 12 years old, and my mom, my aunt, my brother, and I went hiking. And we were in South Dakota, and there were these giant, like, 50-foot-tall trees everywhere. And the path was really beautiful, but it was really hot out. We got to the halfway point, and little Cruz is just, like, dying over here. So we're like, all right, we got to turn around. So we get to the halfway point in this trail, and these giant trees are just looming everywhere. And as we turn around, we see this sign right in front of us. Warning, hikers, you're in mountain lion country. And it went on to tell us that these mountain lions stayed in the trees, and when hikers would walk under them, that's when they ambushed prey. So that giant, you know, three-mile hike up the mountain wasn't nearly as terrifying as when we hiked back down. And, you know, it's in that moment where you start sizing up your competition. And I looked at my aunt, and she likes to run marathons. And I was like, okay, mountain lion's going to take me over you. And then I looked at my mom, and she likes to run for fun. I was like, craziness just runs on your side of the family. I'm going down. <laughs> and then I looked at little old Cruz, and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not getting eaten today. Because <laughs> how many of you know if you're getting chased, you don't have to be the fastest. You just can't be the slowest. Sorry, Cruz. So nonetheless, we didn't meet a mountain lion, by the way, so that was pretty good. Anyway, as we were hiking down the mountain, I picked up a walking stick. And I figured, you know, if any mountain lion shows up, I might as well be a good, good idea to have my defense put up. And, you know, if any mountain lion came at me, I was going to go all kung fu style on it, you know. Oh. <laughs> but I feel like a lot of people in our world live in this defensive mentality when it comes to climbing the mountain. Because a lot of us in this room or a lot of people in this world who are hurting have a misrepresentation of who God is because of an encounter with a poorly loving Christian. And that a lot of us in here would say that we have been hesitant to climb the mountain and we lived our entire lives with a stick up, ready to fight off any attempt to learn who God is because we were raised in a church of a hateful God and we were raised in a household that taught the old covenant instead of the new and we were taught of a God who is angry and hateful and at any point just wants to be a jerk and ruin your life. I've met with a lot of people and I have a lot of friends who would say that they aren't Christians. And as I've gotten older, I've gotten bolder in the fact that I've asked them, hey, why is it you just won't accept that there's a God that loves you? Hey, why won't you take the chance and just pray because taste and see that the Lord is good and you will see? And their answer was never, oh, I just don't believe because science spouts off, blah, blah, blah. Their first answer almost 99% of the time is, I just don't know if I can believe in a God who's supposed to be loving when his people just hate all the time. And I don't know if I could believe in a God who everybody says is this righteous person, so what's the point? Or man, I was raised in a household where they said if you're blank, 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 or blank, God hates you. Or man, I went to a church one time and I never felt welcomed, but man, I felt like God hated me after I left there. So I've got two things to say. If you're a Christian we need to understand that we are not called to be the condemnation, but we are come to be Jesus to the lost and Jesus to the untouched.
And that today, if you're standing in this room and you've lived your entire life with that defense up, ready to knock down the first Christian that was going to come at you because you were afraid that they were just going to knock your lights out with the Bible and with the law and condemnation, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you've lived your entire life afraid to meet God because of the ways that another Christian has acted or because something that you were taught as a child, which is so biblically wrong, yet it is a principal foundation of your life. I'm sorry if you've walked your entire life and because of a parent or grandparent telling you that if you're a homosexual, God hates you. I'm sorry. When Jesus was on this earth, he didn't look at a sinner and say, I hate you. He loved and fixed the problem afterwards. He never, he never looked at someone's sin and said it wasn't sin. But he said, hey, I love you. Why don't you let me take it away and we can fix this? And I'm here to tell you today, that needs to be our mentality. And worship team, if you'd like to come up to the stage, we're going to get ready to close. Climbing the mountain of prayer and meeting God can seem like a big thing sometimes. And climbing that mountain can seem pretty freaky sometimes. But because of Jesus, it says we have full authority to climb that mountain. Because of Jesus, it says we can come boldly to the feet of God. And I'd like to go back real quick to the book of Exodus. In Exodus, we see that it wasn't Moses who came to the mountain and climbed up and met God. God's voice called down the mountain to Moses, calling him up to him. Jesus wants you to have a passionate, Christ-filled, centered life dedicated to the idea of prayer. The Bible says to pray without ceasing because it's through prayer that I believe things change. And God intimately wants to meet you today. So we're going to practice what we've been preaching all day. And we're going to sing that song, Highland Song of Ascent again. I don't know what your situation with Christ looks like now. I don't know, you know, what you did yesterday. I don't know, you know, what you were taught as a kid. Or if you're still carrying this stick and this rope because you're just afraid and you excuse yourself from climbing the mountain. Or you've been living by another person's rules on how to climb the mountain but what if for just one moment you were to throw the rule book aside and just come to the feet of God in full surrender and you got rid of the stick because you don't care what people say but you know that God is a loving God who wants to meet you and for one minute we got rid of the excuse that God is angry with us and met with a God who wants to fix your life. That you don't have to be good enough to get to God because Jesus already did that. He's excused us from that sin. And for just one moment today, that was the chance where you could meet him and taste and see that the Lord is good and climb the mountain. So we're going to take a moment. And over this next song, I don't know where you're at. But what if today was that day that changed everything and your perspective on life and God and the church was different because today you decided that I don't care who's on my right or left side and I don't care about status, but if God, if you're real, I'm here, and I don't care what my past has said, but in a moment of faith, I'm gonna cry out to you. The altar's open, you can stay seated during this song and just pray, you can stand up and worship. Whatever you feel you need to do, it will be done. Because our one sole purpose here in the church is to draw closer to God. And what if today was the day that changed that? It'll change your life. So we're going to worship for a little bit, and then I'll come back and close this out.
If you were impacted by this sermon or if you have any questions, we would love to hear from you. You can find us on social media at Community Hope on Facebook and Instagram or at our website, communityhope.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next week.